Leadership's incredibly lonely. When we're talking continuous improvement, most of it is failure. In a leadership sense, making sure that your beliefs and values and so on have alignment into what you're running out in the business. Your strap plan, as you said before, is a living, breathing document. It's not something you look at once a year. Hello, and welcome to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, brought to you by SG Partners. Each episode allows you to hear from real leaders of real businesses with the aim of assisting you to become even more effective at what you do. Whether you're already a leader, CEO, business owner, manager, or an entrepreneur. This exploration of leadership effectiveness covers a range of challenges you may already be experiencing yourself. Now, let's hear from our host, international speaker master, NLP practitioner, and owner of SG Partners, Michael Lang. Hello, and welcome to Traits of Effective Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Michael Lang, owner of SG Partners. Welcome to an amazing guest. One of the reasons I look for interesting people is they have a certain dynamics about them. So throughout this podcast series, we're going to have several leaders that have led a company and made some mistakes and learned from it and so forth. Today, we've got an even another dimension. We've got a guest that not only is a leader in her own business, but she's been leading in assisting other leaders of up to 250 plus companies. And she's already written a book about it as well. So today, we're going to discuss many things around about leadership, not only for herself, but what she's discovered with other leaders in the company she's worked with. And then we're going to just probably just go off on a tangent, talk about all fascinating things to both of us. So strap in and let's kick this off. So my special guest today is Susie Johnson, and I met her probably in 2015 where she was helping a group of business leaders grow their businesses by understanding some of the challenges they're having and how they're moving forward. So Susie is one of Australia's most highly regarded executive advisors. That's something to live up to. And the brain's behind dramatic turnarounds in the performance of hundreds of different businesses. She leads a small team of talented professionals just like herself, and she is primarily around releasing the gale of productivity in in other people's businesses. She's direct. You'll uh, pick that one up. She's empathetic, and she's very (laughs) certain about her capabilities, which I love. She doesn't offer transient quick fixes, so she's in there for the long haul. And as I said, she's worked for over 250 companies and companies like the NAB, Hella, Metricon, Accenture, QBE. I mean, just great logos, you might say. And so as a founding director of her company, Method 9, she's also an author of the book, I Am The Problem, which we'll go into as well. And she's also a co-founder of Tech Diversity. So we've got someone here that's got a great diversity in her understanding about leadership and also applying those thoughts, those mindsets and those skills to helping other leaders be even more effective. So let's get into it. Susie Johnson, welcome. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. And I really appreciate your time and energy here as well. Oh, thanks, Michael. Now, I just picked up Susie in the car and we were already going on. I said, hey, we should be recording this, right? Um, it's just just amazing when you get a like-minded person that you can just bounce all these ideas. Yeah. So let's kick off and talk about culture. So my question to you is in your company and also in other companies, what do you see as the main drivers to create, recreate or embed culture? The main drivers around culture, there are so many. And the interesting thing about culture is that you you just pull a group of people together and you have a culture. Mm. And I think in a lot of businesses, especially when you're first starting a business and scaling a business, it's so busy and it's easy for culture just to happen. And sometimes we're lucky with culture and sometimes we're not. And culture has a lot to do with the leaders of the business, the leadership team and and their intention and how it is they choose to turn up in the workplace. Mm. And so if we start to get intentional about culture, then what is it that we're getting intentional about? And how do we create a culture that's in line with our values, which enables the business to scale in a way that we started it. And that's really difficult as well. So I think the most important thing is clarity. So clarity around who it is we are, 
what it is we're working towards, what's important, the values, and the behaviours that bring those values to life. In your work with leaders, Mm. do you think they think culture is important? I think they struggle with what culture is. It's very very difficult to describe. You know, you can walk into an organisation and you can sit in reception and you've been there and you feel the energy. And even now I'm going a bit woo-woo, aren't I? But you can feel from the moment that you communicate with people within that organisation what that company Mm. is about. So the hotel you've just picked me up from is a, a great example of that, that all the little bits of communication that I've had with all of the staff mm. since my arrival creates a culture, which creates a feeling in me mm. and, you know, it, it makes you think about whether or not you want to be part of that, part of that as a customer, a stakeholder, an employee. And so if you talk about culture and you then have a, a conversation about the sort of culture we want to create then what does that mean? And I think it it's certainly starts with our values. You know, what, what is it as an organisation that's really important to us? What are values? Now, this is interesting too, Michael. Oh, don't. Let, <laughs> right. I mean, so, values, I mean, the challenge I have with companies, they come up with all these beautiful words. They're, right? yeah, values, they're on the wall. Right. And I say, how would you know someone is living that value? And they mm. look at me and I'm going, Really? You haven't even explored that. You think just yeah. by talking about a value that that's culture? Yeah. Yeah. Would it be even more beneficial if we didn't talk about culture but we talked about tribes? Because that's yeah. something people can get their heads around, right? I'm a chief yeah. of a tribe. Mm-hmm. So what do we want our tribe to do consistently? Yeah. Yeah. And that and then we're back at, you know, clarity. Right. Yes. So as I said earlier, you know, this whole concept of leadership, it is the ability to get a variety of different things achieved. It's about bringing other people Mm. along on the journey and it's about the ability to influence, to motivate and to inspire people. And how do we do that? Well, we've got to start with being really clear about what it is we're working towards. So you go away, you do a strategy offsite. And I remember when I was in my 20s, I was working for an amazing organisation and the leadership team were going away on an offsite. And I thought, wow, I would love to be part of that. I've got so many ideas. And they actually sent an email out to the staff. If you've got any ideas, put them in writing and we're going to take them to the offsite and we're going to come back and we're going to have a a strategy that we'll be working towards over the next three years. And I spent a whole weekend. I was writing. I was really excited. I saw the potential and the opportunity. And, Michael, I never heard back on that ever. So for that fleeting moment, Suzanne, you (laughs) thought they cared about you and your input. Yeah, I did. And, you know, there is what I perceived as being a value, which was, wow, they're giving the staff a voice and opportunity to have a say in what we're working towards. And I worked hard on it. And I I got it right down to two pages and sent it out, but unfortunately, and then they, they never killed, went back. They, they, they just, I lost my chutzpah right there oh, and then. Wow. And, yeah. and so if you're going to be intentional about these things, then creating those vehicles for people can be so mm-hmm. powerful. But, you know, that's learning from 25 years ago and I, I look at that now and I, I think, There must be lots of young Susies in a variety of different organisations with that kind of motivation that do want to be part of something, that want to have a voice, and they don't have a leadership role, but they're really passionate about the business. They want to be part of the tribe. Yeah. So So why do leaders struggle so much with culture? I think the first thing is they're really caught in the day-to-day busyness. So I'm the leader. I am the fixer. I'm the problem solver. I'm the firefighter. People come to me and I I fix problems. That's the first thing. Secondly, it's ego as well. You've got to protect your ego a lot of the time. And I think that's very difficult for a lot of leaders. And the other thing is getting back to the clarity issue. If we're not really clear and intentional about things, and I think a lot of leaders are in the unknown a lot of the time. Leadership's incredibly lonely. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. You think about right. the first chapter of my book, it's, it's all about self-awareness. Yes. But how can a leader be self-aware if they're not getting feedback? So it's a very lonely place. So you've got a leader that's protecting themselves, they're perceived as being the problem solver, and they're lonely. And when they ask for feedback, it's very difficult to get constructive feedback. And I think that's why they find culture really difficult because there is a gap between what it is the leadership team perceive is going on and what really happens in the workplace every day. There's a a gap. So how then do we create a culture? You've got to be in it a lot of the time. Mm. So stepping away from the desk, actually doing a walk around. And it's difficult with national and international businesses. You know, how is it that you create that presence? But all of that is part of culture. And leadership is not just within the leadership team. You know, it's creating the tribe custodians across the business, finding those young 20-year-old Susies and helping them to be culture custodians. And how do you do that? Well, you make them feel part of the strategy, the culture, the communication conversation. What ideas do they have? You know, make them part of it. It doesn't have to be so structured. So there's there's good and there's bad ego, right? Mm-hmm. So while I'm listening to you, you now you hear my excuses, I don't have time, I'm the problem fixer. And I say, yeah, yeah but first of all, you've got to want to. You've got to want to care about others. Yeah. So it's not an I thing, it's a we thing now. Yeah. So a lot of leaders I find haven't gone through that process. Yes, I might be the problem fixer, but that's still an I. Where is the leverage? They don't think about how to leverage and therefore go from the I to the we. So the first step is, do you care enough about others? Mm -hmm. And if you did, that would help you take the first step of discovery, right? Do that walk around as opposed to just come in your office in the morning and you stay in the office. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's... It's difficult because there's eight working hours in the day. So if, if we're going to get intentional about it, we actually need to take a company-wide approach to how it is we choose to turn up at work. So it's not just the leadership team. It's everyone. We're yeah. all part of it. So you mentioned the values up on the wall. I was with an HR practitioner asking about the values the other day and she didn't know what the values were and I said well you know they're they're up there and she went oh yeah that's right well I've only been with the company for six months but the thing is that needs to be part of the induction the transition the integration it's the storytelling correct it's, it's so and important it's the constant storytelling I mean mm-hmm. just because you've had the induction and the onboarding and there's our values yeah. you're done dusted yeah it's yeah. part of the leadership's role is never stop telling the story never stop giving examples and never stop embedding, mm. right? Because, yeah. you know, wouldn't it be amazing if the tribe lived and breathed those values day mm. in, day out? Yeah. And they would articulate to someone at a barbecue mm. to say, hey, you should come work for us. Yes. Right? Because this is what we do, right? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we could go on for a long time about culture Yeah, and it's and nebulous. It's really difficult. And, you know, the values part of it is paramount and yeah, what are our values? Yes. We only really clearly understand what our values are when we have a values conflict. Correct. Right. So so I say to a lot of companies, mm-hmm. like, you've got these values, so what's the above-the-line behaviour and below-the-line behaviour for that value? Yeah. And look at me, I said, seriously, how would you know that I was living breathing the value? Mm-hmm. How would you know that I wasn't? Capture that and then go articulate that. Yes. And then coach, mentor, walk the floor, never stop telling a story about it. And what would your organisation be like is if everyone called out below-the-line behaviour and everyone celebrated above-the-line behaviour. Yeah. It wouldn't be amazing. Yeah, skipping through the tulips, it would be fantastic. Life would be easier, right? Yeah, of course it would. And I think my the thing that drives me every day and the reason that I wrote my book is things have to change. You know, we can't be just focused on revenue and profitability. That has to be the side benefit for creating really great working environments. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, for our children and our grandchildren and the generations to come, work shouldn't just be the place we go to have a job, to earn the money, to buy more stuff. 
And I think it is for a lot of people. Yeah, I hear. A lot of people. And we're seeing examples in Australia where some industries are being caught out. Mm. Yeah, we are. (laughs) And we still are probably. So maybe there is a change coming. I feel there is. I am eternally optimistic. Right. Now you work with a lot of founders, right? Yeah. So when we talk about culture, I mean, as we were talking in the car, they have an idea to solve a problem and so they create the solution and then they're so focused on delivering that solution and then they start to grow and they need to employ people. In your experience, when does this idea of culture sort of pop up in their journey? Mm. When I'm working with founders, I like to talk about culture from the get-go. You know, what sort of company are we? What's great about working with founders, they do have a long-term view. And when a company begins and you're working with the founder from the outset, they can often see the difference that the company is going to make in the world long-term. So they're very purpose-driven then. Very purpose-driven at that time and really engaged in a very conscious way in all the activity that they undertake. So there are a lot of people that are really inspired by that Mm. and they want to work with leaders like that. And the learning in those environments are huge. So culture often happens because of that kind of leadership when a company begins and it's really exciting. And I love working with those kinds of businesses, especially when they're scaling globally and they're looking at opportunities to land in different parts of the world and how they're going to do it. So there's a lot of talk at that time, not just about what it is we have to do today, but it's what it is we have to execute right here, right now, in line with Mm. that long-term vision. And I think in a lot of corporates, that gets lost over time because, well, for two reasons. I mean, firstly, it's the size of the company, but also the changes that go on within leadership teams. You know, different leaders come in and they have a different kind of influence on the team, which has a different kind of influence on the culture. You know, the moment you bring a new member into any team, you have a different culture. Mm. You've got diversity of thinking. And, I mean, the company I'm working with this week, they have a new member of the leadership team that has joined and immediately, I mean, that person has a very different behavioural style, a different mindset, a different way of thinking. And the moment you bring a different way of thinking into the team, you are creating such wonderful opportunities. And I work with a lot of, I hate to say male, pale, stale men who don't get along particularly well. I get pulled in to a lot of conversations where a company is scaling and the leadership team no longer get along or they've brought in a, a new director that has a different view and there's a power play. And I seem to spend a lot of time saying, hello, have you noticed anything about the other people around the room? Just, you know, just have a look. Mm. I was with a leadership team last week. I was working with the board and the CEO and the whole team. And I said, um, what is it about this team that you notice you've got in common? So there was a lot of things shared and eventually I had to call it and I said, well, you're all men, you're all middle-aged, so you've got the board and the leadership team. Where's the diversity in this? And one of them said, oh, my God, why don't we ring Julia? She'd be great for the board. Do you remember Julia? And I said, well, that's actually not creating the kind of diversity right. I'm, Isn't I'm thinking about. Isn't it interesting that they went straight there, That right? went straight to, and I think yes. that's one of the biggest challenges that we have is that like attracts like. We tend to choose to work with people we've worked with before when it's it comes easier, to new. Right. It is. Of course it's easier. And, you know, it's much easier to do that than yes. to get a headhunter and to go out there and then have somebody independent interview yes. people. Yeah. yeah. So it's a tricky place, but I think often when we're all eating the same dog food and it seems to taste pretty okay and it's comfortable that we think things are going along nicely. And I would argue that the moment we're comfortable, 
then that's the time that we've got to really reassess yeah, everything. Yeah, totally That was a long answer to your question. That was a great conversation. Thank you. <laughs> Susie, strategy. What are the key activities from your experience needed to consistently apply to ensure people are aligned to strategy? Hmm. Aligned. <laughs> aligned, the key word. I talk about this a lot. I've got a whole chapter that I talk about strategy. I think clarity around what it is we're working towards is really important. And then once you've got that clarity, so getting back to what we were saying earlier about the the offsite, the think tank and the strategy, you know, the strategy document, Mm. we make a big deal about strategy, but really what is it? You know? Yeah, it's not it's not a set and forget. It should be organic, it, right? It should be part of what it is we're doing yeah. every day. And I think the most inspirational leaders that I have the luxury of working with are really clear about the best use of our time right here, right now, in line with what it is we're working towards. So they communicate it over and over again. And if you were observing from outside of the business, you might think, wow, they do that a lot. They repeat the values a lot. They they talk about what we're working towards a lot. Anytime they can bring teams together, they do it. And, you know, in the advertising sector, there is a name for that. They call it multi-sensory learning okay. and spaced repetition, right? So if you apply the concept of multi-sensory yeah. learning, and that is sharing the same message, over and over and over again through a variety of different mediums. So, yes, the values are on the wall, Mm. but also the values are part of our conversations. Yes. We talk about our values when we're celebrating the success. We talk about our values when we're engaging with new stakeholders and clients. There's written communication, so a reminder every time there's something in, in writing. So there's so many different mediums that we can use to communicate the same message to a variety of different audiences and do it over and over again. So that's the multisensory learning part. And then there's the spaced repetition. So it's just doing it over and over and over again. And the multisensory, as the company scales and grows, you've got different people joining the organisation, you've got new teams, you've got restructuring, you've got so many different vehicles to communicate the same message. So I don't think you can do it enough. And I often say to people, you actually have to over-communicate, right? So whatever you think you're doing currently, and you think you're doing it really well, and you think you're doing it a lot, well, now up the ante, double it. And really, really do, yeah, because, and going back to the advertising concept, People need to, to hear it more than seven times and after the seventh time they'll say, hey, you know, I was thinking they, they about. Might, they might believe it now, right? <laughs> yeah, so they get to that stage of, of actually repeating it to other people mm. as well. So that's when you get the ripple effect. Yes. So that offsite, the strategy, that big document that used to come, yes. you know, here's our strategy, this is what we're doing, this is what we're working towards, you know. We have to be so flexible now as leaders. The rate of change is exponential. And so what can we control? We can control the way we communicate and we can over-communicate and we have to. Why? Because I think the, the majority of people who join any business, they want stability. Well, they, they want they, certainty. When we all want certainty, mm, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and we want variety and we want significance and all yeah. these other things. But there's mm. a vehicle yeah. that coming to work gives us a certain amount of certainty, mm. which translates to some certainty back home. Yes. Yes. So true. So they've done a strategy document. Mm. Is there certain failures in it, implementing it? I mean, do they articulate the objectives? And the activities required, who's responsible. Yeah. Talk about clarity, right? Okay. Yeah. Clarity. So then we've got a strategy. And let's assume that we're half right. Mm. And what I mean by that is that the people that go away and do the off site have got it half right because 
the rest of the strategy actually resides in the knowing of everybody else who works within the organisation. There's me and my job and what's in it for me and Mm. the impact that what I do every day has. And so you've got to be able to translate the strategy then into something that has a meaning for every member of the organisation, regardless of who they are, what they do, how long they've been with the business, what it is they care about, the challenges that they have. You've got to be able to translate it into something that's meaningful to them. And I think the reason people go, oh, gosh, they're away doing that offsite again, that strategy meeting. And, and, whenever and then I'm, they'll come back and all these, these <laughs> yeah, juices flowing. we've got great, great yeah. ideas. And whenever I, and I actually used to think I was part of the problem, you know, because I, I'd be facilitating offsites and have been doing for many, many years. And I would just be there for one or two days with a leadership team. And I'd say to them, now, translating it. And I would always wonder, how do they go mm. about translating it into something that's meaningful? Do they really understand the concept of multisensory and spaced mm. repetition? And, and I learned as well as a facilitator and working with executive teams that, you know, you've got to be really clear. So translating it into something that's meaningful might actually seem really simple for you and I. But how do you translate it into something for somebody who has just graduated from an arts degree at university, has been working in the retail sector, and this is their first job in a a career, for want of a better term, and it's probably a dirty word these days, but how do you translate it into something that's meaningful and inspirational for them? And if you can do it for them, then you're doing it for the majority of people. But I think the bulk of the, the people are often lost on it. So you'll translate it and the next level down will say, great, okay, now we've worked out what it is we Mm. want to do and they'll communicate back and there'll be some banter there. But eventually there's a ripple that gets lost. And so I could walk into the building next door and ask any person on that floor, tell me about the top three areas in which your role makes a difference to strategy and I will get an answer that is not clear, not measurable, not tangible. And, Michael, is that their, their issue to deal with? And getting back to 50%, mm. right, you've got it half right, you have to start the conversation then with everybody else in the business. So there needs to be a program where the strategy is shared top down, but there needs to be the vulnerability of us not having all of the answers. The fact that our industry is going through massive change, the fact that people don't have the answers at an executive level, Mm. at a founder level, at a director level, at a board level, we don't know. Being courageous enough to say, your customers of our product, you know, the staff will be using the product, the staff will be part of the services of that product and, you know, they will understand much more about the business than you do as a leader within the business. So use that. That's where the magic happens. That's where profitability resides. Yes. So it's interesting you use two words there, program and product. If they thought about it as a program or a product, Mm-hmm. then they might think about, well, how do I sell the product internally yes, to yes. get people to buy it? Yeah. Or what do I need to do to make sure this program is truly effective? Mm-hmm. And they might then think differently about embedding the strategy. Yeah. So, no, yeah. They're, they're cool. Yeah, cool the communication there. strategy is so yes. important. And the it. question I would have is even after that strategy session, did everyone in that strategy session walk away with living and breathing it mm-hmm. and taking ownership of it or were they going to, white ant it somewhere else because it wasn't, they didn't feel part of it. Yeah, did they really understand it? Was there enough conflict and did people feel safe to share a conflicting perspective? Mm. So at the end of that strategy session, the leader knew that everyone was locked in. Yeah, yeah, and that's where I spend a lot of my time, you know, picking up on feeling, seeing, thinking and having to call it. Yes. So. You know, you mentioned earlier that I, I'm direct. I have worked on being direct for so long. It's not something that ever right. came okay. naturally to me. 
And it's interesting that a lot of people do say that I'm direct. I have developed a muscle to be able to call it when I see it, when I feel it. If I notice that a member of the team is slightly disengaged in where it is that mm. we're going to be able to, to call it, know full well that I only have a role for one or two days and I might not ever be back here. And if I don't say it now, yeah. if I don't call it now, that I'm, I'm not serving that team totally in, the, in the best way possible. If it's hard for me as a, an external facilitator and working with that team, how hard would it be for a member of the team calling it with their, their yeah. CEO? And it is difficult. So I always see my role as playing the devil's advocate, asking the provocative questions to make sure, absolutely sure, that everybody walks away with that innate belief. Mm. Yeah, this is what we're working towards. This is why it's important. This is why it's a value to me. Because if they can't translate it in that way, then the moment they go back to their own teams within their working environment, it's lost. Love a freebie? Go to sgpartners.com.au forward slash resources and get access to guides and templates that will make you and your team more effective today. You pick on a great point because I say to leaders, I'm a fan of Genghis Khan. And one of the things that I learned about Genghis Khan, even with his family, when he gave them an order, he asked them to repeat the order. Mm. So just to have that understanding that people understood you, Mm. right? Yeah. So wouldn't it be great at the strategy session, at the end of the strategy, everyone stood up and actually articulated the strategy, knowing that, yes, we're on the same page. Yes. Yes. There's a great take out there. Mm, cool. Absolutely Thank you. important. Susie, let's talk about your book, right? I Am the Problem. I love the title, right, because it's in your face. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I know you send the book out to prospective clients, right, so that if they're going to engage, then they know what they're getting. Yeah. So if we're talking about three core leadership traits, the first chapter is about self-awareness. Was that a natural thing to start the book with? Well, funnily enough, When I wrote the book, actually, there's a story behind why I wrote the book, because I would walk away from leadership teams having, you know, worked together and think, oh, my goodness, you know, now that we've gone through this day together, things seem so simple, right? So how could I create that simplicity and then write a book about it? So that was the whole premise behind the book, to be able to give it to anybody and to say there's some practical tips in there. You can implement this immediately and I'm giving away everything. I'm giving away 25 years of working with leadership teams and so many different businesses and industries and the way I go about improving their effectiveness, their communication, their understanding of what it is they're working towards. It's it's all there. So I thought, well, okay, I can give that to future teams that we're going to be working with and say this is what we're going to be doing together to help them to understand that it's it's a bit of a journey that we're going to be on together. And when I first wrote the book, the self-awareness chapter was not the first chapter. And it wasn't until, oh, I don't know, there was 96,000 words in the first, the first mm-hmm. book and I, I then had to sort of juggle it around and go through the editing process. And I got one of my clients to read the book and as a result of that, they said, look, Susie, the biggest learning that we have had as a leadership team is the importance of our mindset and the impact that our mindset has on our perception of reality and how that forms the company. Go figure. So, <laughs> hello. <laughs> and I said, wow, that's what I do. I, that, that's, that's actually what we do at Method 9. That's the difference that we make. So that has to be the first chapter, that is self-awareness. And so self-awareness came first, but you said that what other things are really important. You know, once you've got the self-awareness, then it's a choice about how it is I want to turn up every day at work. And so with the self-awareness comes this conscious intention, right? 
and then it's communication. So they're the three core it. elements. I love it. Mm. Yeah. So why is it so hard then for leaders to be great leaders? Well, not all leaders have got self-awareness. You know, you think about somebody that starts a business, they're technically brilliant. They've recognised that there's a gap in the market. They've recognised that there's a problem that has to be solved and they have the ability to do it. They've got an idea. So they're brilliant technicians. And then they surround themselves with other brilliant technicians, usually people they've worked with before. Mm, And then it takes off and it starts to grow. Well, they haven't been investing in themselves and their self-awareness. They're certainly not doing 360-degree feedback or they're not running workshops and off-site. They are working out how it is they're going to scale a business. So there is not a lot of conversation about being intentional about culture, Mm -hmm. communication, anything like that in those early days until they get first round of funding and they've got investors and investors say, you know, you've got to really work on that stuff. And then you compare that to big corporates where you've got natural attrition and, you know, you've got turnover and people that stay for a fixed period of time. Things are changing all of the time. So how do we know how much self-awareness a person has. Well, it's when things go wrong Mm -hmm. that we recognise it and then, you know, someone will say, we need to get somebody in, we need to have a team off-site, we need to invest in the professional development of our people. But even then, it doesn't create self-awareness. So I just had a bubble there. Yeah. Well, do you think, I mean, we're talking about emotional intelligence here, right? Yeah. Do you think self-awareness is linked to the Ability and art form of listening. Yes. Yes, I do. But it's not listening like we're listening to each other now. Yeah. It's also a feeling. Yeah, right? listening to everything, right? Yeah, it, yeah it's, it's a, multidimensional. It's, yeah, right? yeah. So a leader calls you up and says, yeah. I need some help with the executive team. Is one of your core components of whether you will engage with the leader and the core and the team is there is some self-awareness by the leader? Oh, gosh. (laughs) This is a a tricky question. Will I share a quick story? Yeah, go for it. Yes, please. I had a a phone call from a company director and the things he said over the phone about his fellow directors was very interesting to me. There's a lot of colourful language and your company's been recommended and I want you to just come in and fix the team. Fix and them. I love fix that. Them. Yeah. Michael, I love a challenge. <laughs> I love a challenge. And, you know, this is a very, this is a recent But in story. the back of your mind you've got a red flag, right? Of course I do. But all, I'm incredibly curious, like, wow, how has it come to that? And he said, well, how are you going to approach this? And I said, well, we would need to interview every member of the executive team. And there were a couple of directors in there, the CEO in there. And, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I just want to have a workshop, just get you in. I said, no, really, we need to do that because we have to gather the evidence in all the different areas of the team before we help you to make some decisions about how to fix Yes. The team. Fix them. (laughs) So we have to get their different perspectives. And there are things, and this is what's really interesting, There are things that people will share with an external consultant that they have never shared with anyone. Yeah, I know. And you get that one-on-one, so then it's our job to go into those environments and ask some really what you might think are very naive questions in order to be able to start to help these teams to have the much deeper conversation. Well, ironically, it turned out, that it wasn't the team that needed fixing. No. <laughs> yeah. And there was one individual, the, the person that called me, that was the person that didn't have the self-awareness, yeah. didn't have that level of intelligence around the impact that their behaviour was having on a very, it's an international business. Yeah. And... Oh, it really made me sad because I felt that we got that phone call far too late. Right. If only someone else in that team had have made that call 
this had been going on for seven years. Oh, wow. So mm. if only someone cared enough. Well, I think to, they To think cared. about helping this person. Yeah, but they instead, they were intimidated. All right. And I think that happens a lot. So you're intimidated by somebody in the SLT, in the leadership yeah. team. And because you're intimidated, you don't speak out, you don't call behaviours right. that but are inappropriate. Isn't it interesting? They're there for seven years, other people. Mm-hmm. So what does that say about their values well, and their vehicles, right? Yeah, and them obviously talking in the car park, like the things that I yeah. heard, you know, so they're sharing their issues. And they had given him some feedback on the impact that he was having. They had given him some feedback on slowing down, investing in himself. All yeah, but, but there was only he wasn't listening. He, to that. he was yeah. he was hot all yeah. the time. I'd say his anxiety level, like he would have been waking in the night. Yes, he was bringing this anger mm. with him. And Michael, when it gets to that point. How do you communicate? You know, how do you, as a fellow yeah. leadership team member, choose to turn up? So you've got to step into that. You have to be incredibly vulnerable yourself. Which takes courage, right? It takes a lot of courage and it has to be about them in a way that, that their behaviour impacts you. So all the feedback that you give needs to be me mm. feedback, not you feedback. The moment yeah. you go into you, you use the word you yeah. uh, and use it when you've got somebody who is operating with that level of angst mm-hmm. and frustration. It feeds it. it. Yeah. So that's part of the problem too. So as much as people may have tried, you know, you appear to be really angry. Well, of course, that really calms them down, <laughs> yeah. you know. When you said that, did you see what you did to everybody else? It starts to isolate the team member that actually needs the most help. So I really feel for him because he inevitably has been voted out. Yes. Right? He's been voted (laughs) out now. I've been part of that. And this is not unusual. Was blindsided? Yeah, I'm the bad guy, which is great. I mean, I'm more than happy to do that and to help help a team to move on. But the thing is, I find it incredibly frustrating that nobody mm. over the last five years went and got help themselves to be able to work out how to have the conversation. Yeah. Because the moment you talk about yourself and how it is you feel about turning up to work and have that vulnerable conversation one-on-one if you did do that over a period of one and a half or two hours with the person that really needs the help, you will get somewhere. You yeah. really will. You've got to be so patient, committed, clear, yeah, yeah. but talking about how it is you feel and what it is you want. And, Michael, everybody has the same goal. I look at that team and I look at a team I'm working with at the moment, very similar problems, but no one's going to be voted yeah. out. It's going to be great, thank goodness, because somebody was courageous enough to say we have a problem. Yes. We need to do something about it, and that takes courage. But we all have the same goals. We all want to come to work, to have a voice, to feel valued, Mm -hmm. to feel as though we're making a difference, to be in touch with why we started the business in the first place. We want to be part of that tribe. We are. We all want to be part of that tribe. It's innate. It's part of our DNA. It's what makes us human. So the moment it becomes you and me, we're dead in the water. Yeah. It's always got to be we. And the we, it's there. Care about others. Give it, give yeah. a shift. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I had this leader, we were doing some leadership work, and I got to say the managing director cared enough about his people to mm. ask us to get involved because he wasn't involved. He asked us. Yeah. And when we interviewed, one of the other leaders said, I'm a dictator. And the way he said it was a badge of honour. I'm yeah. going, why me? <laughs> And there was some cross-contextuality in his marriage and so forth. And yeah. I thought, oh, we did emotional intelligence 360 and everyone said they didn't want to work with him. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. But to his credit, six months later, he did a 180-degree turnaround. Yeah. People said they want to work with him. 
So there was a trigger point, and that, that's what it's about. Human yeah. beings will change if there's a trigger point. Now, what was the trigger point? So it's either an internal trigger point or external trigger point. You know, I kind of think the trigger point would be some things that we shared with him, but maybe the 360, but maybe he was also going on a foreign assignment to another culture which would not have got him anywhere, mm. right, to a culture where being a dictator would not have worked at all. You would have been isolated. Yeah. I say in a foreign country, you can't speak the language. There's no way you can act like you've been acting. Yeah. And if you're going to be isolated, it's going to be for a long time. Mm. Right. So yeah. So there's probably many trigger points. I'm just kudos to him that he got it. Right. One of the things that we, uh, we set up some projects and we said, right, your team has projects and they all need everyone else to help them in their, in their projects success. But your only project is to run project meetings and you have to bring the morning tea and you have to buy it, demonstrating that you care enough about others mm. to go do that. Yes. That's the only thing you have to do and you have to be consistent. Mm. Right? I think there would have been with that guy an overarching purpose as well. You know, if I, I think back to the team that I'm working with now, there is a, when it all boils down, the CEO's voice broke when he said, I want this to be my legacy. Ah, there you go. There's a trigger. And there, so every form of communication beyond that was, this is your legacy. And it was so easy to say, you know, because we able to crystallise that. That's so primal, isn't it? We're talking about a chieftain here. Yeah. I want this to be my legacy. Mm. And when that little, you know, that voice just breaks up just a little or where there's a a bit of a glimmer in there. So we've got some emotion going. Mm. And so the belief we talked about earlier, there's this overarching belief and I want to be seen as being the person that helped us to get there, you know, this is my legacy, then the awareness around caring for the tribe and being a leader of a tribe or a variety of different tribes, yes. you know, a tribe in every every country yep. you're working in, it then becomes about everybody else. And I, I wonder how fearful people are as leaders. You know, I was with a, a lady yesterday who's, you know, I said, where are you going to be in five years? And she said, I love the idea of being a CEO. I don't know what that means. It's scary to me. But really, you don't know what it's like being the boss yes. until you're the boss. Mm. And you don't know how lonely it is until you are at the top of the organisation. And then what? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, some people can peak too early. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Susie, we're talking about self-awareness. Self-awareness as a critical trait also means that you should learn from failures, Mm. or as I like to call them, lessons learnt, just a softer way. Part of my own struggle in getting into business was I had this mindset that I'd listened to so much noise out there that leaders said, to be successful, you must fail. And I just said to myself, well, I have two rules, primary rules. I must be perfect and I must not fail. So you can't. Wow. Yeah. So that was a, that was thanks to Tony Robbins, right? So in the Mercy yes. program with him, you know, find out your primary rules. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I came to understanding those two rules, I went back to when I was 15-year-old in the kitchen with my dad. And my dad says, I don't care what you do in life. You could be a garbage man. Just make sure you're the very best. So there's a rule of perfection. Now, parents are parents. They just do what they know. Yeah. But imagine going back, if only you said, and you're going to fail and that's okay. Just Mm -hmm. that little bit because straight away I went back to there. So it was deep-seated. So Mm -hmm. you cannot seek the journey of perfection unless you do fail and learn. So here I have two rules, one in opposite directions of the other, which then stopped me going forward. So I had to align them and change my rules. Mm. So once I got that, then I thought, well, actually, I don't have to fail to succeed. I can learn from other people's failures and listen to their learnings. Mm. And then if I'm self-aware enough to see how I can embed those learnings. So Susie, what's Mm. some... 
failures or lessons learned in growing your business or experiencing with other businesses? I've had lots of failed businesses, actually. Really? Have you? <laughs> yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting. I started my first company, I think when I was 19 or Get something. Out. Yeah. Anyway, answering your question, this could take a long time. So I'll just do a quick snapshot. Firstly, I come from a, a long line of entrepreneurs. So right. the entrepreneurial spirit is in my blood. You know, my grandmother and grandfather founded a bakery and listed it and oh. bought a number of different bakeries. And they had so many staff working for them when my grandfather died and my dad had to step in, like go out of school with the horse and cart, doing bread runs and all that sort of stuff. And he talks about that a lot. And it's great. Dad's still working full time. He started his own company 50 years ago this year and he's in containers packaging, anything you can think of that's made out of steel. Right. And my brother and my sister both work in the company as well and it's national and, you know, something to be immensely proud of as a family. Now, of course, I'm the only family member not involved in the business and I've gone off doing my, my own things, but I've done a variety of different things. And with the businesses, I mean, I'll just share the epic failures rather because there's been so many, but I think that's what comes, you know, you talk about your father it's role modelling. We don't know how we're role modelling as mm. parents unless we're really conscious about it. And you know, I often wonder what I'm doing to mess up my girls, you know. I, I can't help myself as a mother, you know, because I do work pretty hard and it comes from a place of passion. But, mm-hmm. you know, what? how is that going to impact them? Maybe but, you should ask them. Yeah, well, I will. I will ask them. I probably haven't asked them that directly. I'll get them to listen to this and then I'll ask them. But it's interesting because the failures, the epic failures that I have had have been profound learning experiences. And the first one was going into a partnership with my boss. So I'd been working with an organisation for, for many, many years and we were out for dinner and we did the business plan on the serviette in the restaurant <laughs> As you do. And I was so excited because he was somebody who I so admire and I'd learnt so much from. And I thought, wow, what it is we'd done together. We'd built a hugely successful business together. You know, I'd grown to 18 million over three years. We just worked and slept (laughs) and probably very little of the latter. So to start up something together was really exciting. And then it didn't work. And I think it wasn't about the business not working. It was about aligning our priorities and the values and the things that were really important. I wanted him around a lot and he didn't have the capacity to be around and in the business a lot. And my communication, in hindsight, and I was 30 at the time, my communication was less than average. I would say, you know, I was just head down, bum up. I wasn't having the conversations that really mattered most. Throwing some things out there every now and then, hoping they would attach. Yes, of course. And asking questions to get him Mm. involved in it. Yeah. Whereas I wasn't having the the we, the bigger picture, the. You know, all the things that you learn through epic failures. Anyway, that was an epic failure because I had been on this trajectory with a really phenomenal career and really great business, all the things that you really hope for in any person in in a working environment. And then to be in this situation where suddenly, well, that's it, it's all over, now what? Mm. And also having started a family and all of those things And, you know, what does the what next look like? And then going from that epic failure into another epic failure, somebody who said, right, we want to give you 50% of our company, we'll work together, this is going to be amazing, a national business. And 
what colour were your glasses? Were they rose-coloured? Oh, <laughs> see, that's the one thing I would say about epic failure and the learnings through epic failure. The people that have that ability to see it as an investment in their learning and growth tend to be more resilient. Mm-hmm. And then that I, that's certainly a muscle that I developed. But the muscle I didn't develop was getting some better glasses, right? Uh, Spending the time actually thinking about the long term, what it is I wanted to achieve. So, yeah, the second epic failure, it was purely a, a values conflict around what it is we were working towards, where it is we wanted to take the business, and it was insurmountable in the end. Then I started Method 9. I actually went in with Method 9 with a 50% partner and, again, values conflict. And ironically, those three examples, and have I covered the three epic failures? That's Yeah, they're the big ones. Ironically, I am... Those three people are three of my closest oh, wow. friends. Okay. Well, I had dinner with one of them a couple yes. of nights ago. He was in Brisbane as well. Yes. Like we talk every other week. He's still my mentor. So it wasn't just big learning for me. Yeah. It's big learning for us. Yes. And I think that the reason we're all such good friends is because personally the learning that I gained through those failures was invaluable to me. I think at the end of my life, I will look back. I mean, first and foremost, family is the big thing. But for me, it is about learning. And I I could never have done an MBA and learnt what I learnt or a master's. Or It's not uncommon to hear that. (laughs) It was powerful. And the theme through those three epic failures, I think, has made me so risk-adverse when I'm dealing with companies that are going through scale-up and growth or bringing new executive team members into the team, I have these processes that I put in place to help these people to recognise the mistake. So it's both, it's having a firm spine and a warm heart. And I think through all those years and those epic failures, I had this warm heart, you know, a very opportunistic Empathy. Yeah, big empathy. Great, great, (laughs) great having that, isn't it? It can get you into a lot of trouble. You know, so my biggest strength became my biggest limitation in my ability to be a leader in my own Mm. business. And that's great because I'm getting to the the end of the story now. I've managed to put 20 years into a snapshot, but the biggest learning for me through all of that is that that self-awareness around, well, what is my greatest strength? So if my greatest strength is my empathy and my ability to really connect and and communicate, to ask the questions that are going to help Mm. teams move along, well, what's the risk in that? Well, the risk is that I'll get people to open up and to move along and to talk about what it is they're working towards But there needs to be that firm spine, Mm. that clarity. What are you going to do by when? What do you need from the team? Why is this important? Do you truly believe? I mean, that's a closed question, Mm. a very powerful question. And if there's any hesitancy in the answer to that question, then you really have to go back to the blank canvas, start over, rethink, reframe, and the consequence of not having those difficult conversations can end up in epic failure, which, Michael, is not that bad. Well, it's got you to where you are now, right? <laughs> yeah. So let us let me ask the final question then. So mm-hmm. go back to 20 years? Mm-hmm, 25. 25 years. <laughs> you meet yourself. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. What advice would you have given yourself back then that might have made life easier? It's amazing. I spend the majority of my consulting, coaching, one-on-one time talking about the importance of you know being really present. So if I was to go back to you know 
25-year-old self, I would say, you know, just breathe. (laughs) Take some time to really think about what it is you are working towards. And I look back and I think, well, I, I was in a hurry and that eternal optimism created an environment of being able to have these businesses that ended up being epic failures, which has been great learning, you know. It has got me here. If I didn't have that learning over the the 20 Mm -hmm. years, then I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. So, okay. So So Susie now goes back to Susie 25 years ago. What would have happened if Susie now said, hey, Susie, I don't know if you're aware of it, but you're great at empathy. Mm. You really are great at getting people to open up. And through that process, they're going to have some aha moments and it's going to change their lives professionally and cross-contextually. And the only thing you need to learn is, along with that empathy, is the directness Mm. to hold people accountable. Imagine what life would be like now for you. Yeah, well, I wonder what I'd be doing now. Yes. Right? So I think there's a good chance I'd be doing something very different. Very different. Because those epic failures sent me on a a journey to help others to Mm. mitigate risk. And really it did start with my father because I I actually remember my mum and dad being in the office in our family home. I was in my school uniform, so I was Mm. probably 15 or 16, and the door was slightly open and I could hear voices raised Mm. and um, so I was inquisitive and put my ear to the... And and dad was saying, I actually don't know how we're going to be able to pay the school fees. You know, so there was a massive debt in the business, the business that's still going today, but it was such a difficult time. And, you know, we're going to have to call the principal. We're going to have Mm. to rethink all of this. And it was in that moment I thought, wow, gee, he's got a tough job. Like suddenly in that moment, I'd always seen him as, you know. Yes, superhero. Absolutely. A little bit scary, actually. You know, I'd hear his car coming home at night and I think, you know, I wonder what sort of mood he's going to be in. And I I write about this in my book and I, I get along so well, so well with my dad. But I think one of the the challenges when I look back then was that that moulded me in so many ways that you know, leadership and owning a business is incredibly hard, incredibly hard. So what was it about me, for goodness sake, that made me think <laughs> that I would want to do that? And I think too because he was a wonderful role model and without him knowing, he imparted mm-hmm. that knowledge. He started sharing a lot more now and I've got him writing about his history and we're yes. catching up once a month. And all the stories about the business are so interesting. They're stories that have to be collected and have to be shared. And I love those conversations. There wasn't a lot of that then. Mm, I can imagine. And it's amazing how I feel that all those pieces of my my childhood puzzle and and all the work that I've done in this space is now all, it's a confluence of all that that's coming together through the conversations I'm having with my dad. So had I had a firm spine and somebody saying, you know, you need to develop a firm spine, and if I'd done a lot of work in that space, the person that I I would have become would have been very, very different. And all of that said, I think we've got to go on our own journey to know the areas in which we need to develop because like an MBA, if somebody said you've got to develop a firm spine, how do we do it? We actually need to be increasing the size of our comfort zone a little bit every day to develop the firm spine. And that's the one thing I I pass on to the girls is to say, you know, if you can just increase that level of comfort just a little bit mm-hmm. every day, that's where the learning happens. That's where the growth happens. And really, at the end of your life, when you're just in a, in a box, that's all you're going to take with you. So, yeah, it's important. Fantastic. Thank you, Susie. 
So Susie, I really appreciate you being here. Those are interested, Susie's written a great book, I Am the Problem, first chapter, self-awareness, go figure. (laughs) It is a great book and we'll promote it for you, Susie. I really appreciate your time and effort and being vulnerable and courageous in sharing. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to talk. Thanks, Michael. Look forward to more. (laughs) Thank Thank you. You have been listening to the Traits of Effective Leaders podcast, a show which shares insights, experiences, and lessons learned by an incredible lineup of real business leaders. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review or share the show with a friend. To get the show notes from today's episode, go to sgpartners.com.au forward slash podcast. Don't want to miss a single episode? Sign up to be notified when the next one drops. Thank you so much for listening.